0: Have you ever seen anything that you just couldn't believe with your eyes when you saw it? Something that just jumped out at you, and you almost thought, that can't be real. A few years ago, there was a golf course in Branson, Missouri, and in the morning, the, the ground just started to, to shake and to, and to fall out, and it turned out that there was a sinkhole right outside one of the greens. Could you, could you imagine chipping up when that thing falls underneath you? And you're staying at that, and you look at it, and you think, "Oh my gosh, like that, that is unbelievable there's this this sinkhole that exists and by the way, don't let this freak you out, but there's they say there's lots of sinkholes, places, and they just need to be triggered, so just be careful when you're walking your dog okay so't don't, <laughs> don't let that get in your head, but it's real right that, That's a real picture but I, I think we've all haven't we been in places where we see something and we're like i don't just i can't believe I saw that, and sometimes it's not ridiculously crazy like a sinkhole. Sometimes it's just this amazing feat, right, of strength or something. When I was a kid, you know, we grew up Kansas City Royals fans and so my dad would take me to games and we got to see the Vincent Edward Bo Jackson in the flesh. And I remember one of the coolest things I've ever seen was when Bo Jackson broke a bat after striking out on his knee. Which, you know, when I was 10, this was the coolest thing. And so then we went and dug out all of our dad's old wooden bats and tried to do it ourselves and limped for like a week at school <laughs> because it's a lot harder than it looks. You, you might not know that, but it, yeah, I think I still have a cracked knee bone from that one. But we, we just see these things, right? We're like, wow. And, and if you're a sports fan, we, we see these things all the time, right? It, it happens. Like the miracle on ice in 1980, right? When, when the U.S. wins the, the Olympics, it's like, oh, it's the miracle on ice. I can't believe that happened, or, if you're a, a Titans fan, the, the Music City Miracle where they lateral and throw passes and they end up winning the playoff game. And I, who was that against? I, I, don't think it was, I don't think it was the Bills. But I mean, there was just this, I didn't, I didn't plan that. I didn't swear that just happened. But there's these things we call, they're like, oh, these miracles. I can't believe it. But let's be honest, those aren't really miracles. Those are things that just happened that are crazy, right? Like, how did that happen? And yet, there's just a whole other realm of things that we just can't explain. I mean, haven't we all heard stories where it's like, is that real? Did that really happen or is that true? You know, the, the person with stage four cancer that just is healed? Or, or the baby blind, born blind who all of a sudden can see? Or people who had injuries that they thought would never heal from and, and all of a sudden they do? And you just wonder, like, did that happen? But then you get to meet somebody and all of a sudden you go, I just can't explain that. I've told this story before, but we had a friend named uh, Pietra and she had congestive heart failure and she actually was hooked up to an electrical machine that kept her heart beating and her heart was at 20% of what it should have been and the doctors had her on all these medication and they said, for life you're probably going to be on this and you may need a heart transplant. And she went in for her next appointment and she was 100% healed. Her heart was at 100% and the doctors couldn't explain it. They just said, it's a miracle. Some of you have experienced some of those things, and so how do we wrap our minds around that? Are these just exaggerated stories, or is there something going on here? See, by, by definition, a miracle is a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by nature or scientific law and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. The Harris Poll did a study on miracles. They, just, they asked thousands of people, what do you think about miracles? And as you can imagine, people were all over the map. You know, about a third of people said, ah, I just can't really get my head around miracles. They seem too supernatural. Uh, about two-thirds of people at some level said, yeah, like I believe in something supernatural. I believe in a miracle. And they found that two out of five people, 38% of people have actually experienced a miracle in their life. And so, how do we wrap our minds around miracles? Are they senses of, uh, are, are, you know, just like stories of figmentation? Are they folklore? You know, is a miracle like Paul Bunyan and his ten-mile-long kitchen, or, or Johnny Appleseed planting every apple tree in the country? I and mean, he get he got around really well. You know, he was fast. You know, is this what miracles are, or is there something more to them? And as we look at the Bible, and we see that the Bible talks a lot about miracles. Again, is this folklore, or do these really happen? And if they did, what is God teaching us through these miracles? This morning, um, and up until Advent, we're kicking off a series called Miracles. And we're going to look specifically at the miracles in the book of John. Now, a lot of Bible scholars will estimate there's between 37 and 40 miracles that Jesus did. John gives us seven, and we're going to look at five of them. And and John really uses them as road signs for Jesus and There's some special communication that John is trying to teach us about who Jesus is on his way to the cross. And so we're going to dive into this. And here's the commitment I want want to ask you guys to make. As we spend the next five weeks looking at these miracles, a lot of us bring in some presuppositions. A lot of us bring in some opinions. And we're all over the map on that. But what I want to ask you to do is to hold off. Let's dig into these five miracles. See what God is teaching us. And then we can craft some opinions around them. So I'd love if you guys could commit that because I I believe as we peel back each of these miracles one by one, we're going to see that there's something really powerful that God is teaching us. And I think it has the capacity and the power to change our lives. So if you have your Bibles, I want to dig into the very first miracle in John chapter 2. It's when Jesus becomes the ventor, the the, the winemaker himself. John chapter 2. Flip there in your Bibles if you would. What's interesting about this miracle is, is many of you probably are familiar with this one. Like this is the, like the most famous probably of all of Jesus' miracles. Jesus turning water into wine. And I don't know what that says about our culture, right? I think maybe it's because we live in Colorado. They're like, we sure it was wine. We sure it wasn't IPA. But I think it was wine. I don't think, you it may have had IPA, but you were a barbarian if you drank it back in Jesus' time. And so you've got this really crazy miracle. And, you know, sometimes as church people, we go, hmm, Jesus, like why couldn't you just turn that into like ginger ale, right? Like why does it got to be wine? But it's one of the most common miracles in the Bible. And and there's just this, this really cool thing. I mean, this miracle is just ripe with Old Testament and New Testament imagery. And there's a beautiful aroma and balance to uh, the the, the spiritual nature of Jesus. Um, So, you know, let's uncork this together. So, um, I know, it's dad joke time. But let's look at how Jesus turned Dasani into Cabernet, all right? John chapter 2, notice this. It says this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. Somebody say Cana. Some, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, I want you to just picture this. This is first century. This is probably like 27 AD, maybe. Right? You can debate three-year window on that, but this is 27 AD. There was no Bronco games on at London at 730, right? There was no concerts at Red Rocks. Like, you couldn't go, you know, downtown and, and, and catch a show. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of extracurriculars, right, in first century Israel. Weddings were it. Like, weddings literally were, it, it, you gathered together. And, and Canaan was a small place. Probably, maybe, they estimate about 60 people in this little village. And so it's probably everybody gets invited out. And so weddings were a big deal. Weddings, you know, you went to a couple weddings a year and it was this really big deal. And often a wedding in that context was really small. It was your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters and that was it. But then after the wedding, you had what they called the wedding feast, which often ran up to seven days long. And so it was this party where you ate and you drank and you laughed and you told stories and you sang and you danced and you you did all these really fun things. And the whole community often would come out or big groups of people. So they would do this for, for seven days. And a key element to this party was the wine. And so in, enter the wine. Now, a, a side note about the wine. Uh, back in those days, wine was very different than it is today. Ancient fermentation w- was very different. And th- the basic ancient fermentation was just grapes turning into sugars, which would turn into alcohol. Uh, so it was very limited alcohol content. You've probably heard people say this before, but the wine in Jesus' time was probably maybe a quarter or 20% as potent as the wine is today. Um, Also, wine was one of those things in that culture that was very common because they didn't have water water filtration. Like you couldn't like fill up your bottle of water at the gym, right? Like you had to, if you needed to get off the treadmill and work out, you had to like scoop it out of a well and put it in a bucket, right? And, And so there was no way to filter water. And the water had all kinds of gross stuff in it, as you can imagine. Just use your imagination. And so they would often mix wine with water to, do, you know, kind of kill some of the bad stuff. And so wine was a very popular part of culture. They didn't have life straws, you know, you couldn't clean water, so wine was big. Um, and because wine was so diluted, you often had to drink a ton of it to get drunk. And so you'll you'll see throughout the Bible people who talk about drunkards, is this idea that they're up all night drinking wine, like all night, because you had to drink so much of it. So imagine they're at these weddings and are having a good time. Wine still made you merry. It may not have got you super intoxicated, but it made you merry. And they were singing songs and dancing and all these things at the Jewish wedding. So there's an important element here of why Jesus uses wine, why he turns water to wine as the first miracle. There's a picture, a symbolic picture in the Bible of wine being tied into the grace of God. It talks about, like God, wine makes the man of heart merry. Like, it, it talks about God's grace at one point in, in Psalm, one, Psalm verse 4, verse 7. It says, God, you know, with your grace, you have filled my heart with greater joy than when grain and new wine abound. So there's this, this symbolism about how wine makes us merry, that, 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 that the grace of God brings us joy and, and merriment. Water was necessary for life, wine wasn't. So there's this picture that God gives us something that isn't necessary, that's beautiful into our lives. So it's fitting that Jesus' first miracle, when Jesus says hello world to everyone, it's actually by turning water into wine. So let's look back at the story here. Jesus is at this wedding feast. He's with his mom and he's with his buddies. He's with his disciples and something happens. Something unthinkable happens. Look at verse three. And uh, it says, when the wine ran out, uh-oh, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, you might be thinking, like, what's such a big deal about the wine running out? Because we've probably all been at weddings when, like, the, the beef tartare runs out or whatever, the chicken strips, you know, it runs out. You're kind of like, well, guess I'm going to have to eat more potatoes au gratin. Right? Well, here, when the wine runs out, it symbolizes a lack of planning by the groom. So, so let me give you a picture about, so those of you that are getting ready to get married, let me give you a little picture about engagements in that point in time. People would engage, be engaged and it would last about a year. And during that year, the, the bride would live with her parents, the husband would often build the home they were gonna live in, and often he attached it to the, his parents' home. And he would get everything ready, make all the appropriate preparations so that on their wedding day, everything would be perfect. So by running out of wine, it was the symbol to the rest of that 60-person village that the husband wasn't ready. Does that make sense? That he was ill prepared to take care of his new bride because he didn't have enough wine to drink. And so we think that Mary must have known the family because she's concerned about this. And so Mary walks up to Jesus and she's like, Hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And what's interesting is notice she doesn't tell him what to do. Mary's not like, Hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine. Can you make some more? Instead, she's like, They ran out of wine. You know, and I'm sure there's, like, an expectation. Like, uh, so what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this, Jesus? And this is really interesting. There's an expectation by Mary. But notice what Jesus says. This is crazy. Don't miss this. Like, imagine your mom or your grandma or your favorite aunt walks up to you and says, hey, Kyle, we ran out of something. And what do you say? Oh, psh, I'll go to King Supers and grab it real fast. No worries. No worries. Or if you're Jesus, I got this, you know. But notice what Jesus says. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman... Hold on a second, what? Now, if I said woman to my grandma, grandma, if you're watching, you know this is true, or my mom, I'm gonna get a backhanded a lip with a ring on it. And I know because it happened, right? Still doesn't grow all the way through, grandma, you know? What's Jesus doing, woman? You know, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, he probably didn't say it all spicy like that, right? He probably said, what does this have to do with me? What's interesting? That word for woman doesn't—it's not rude like we think it sounds. You know, like if I say "Hey, woman" at home, Courtney's gonna be a little salty, right? Like that's not good. Don't don't say that, fellas. Don't don't pretend. Don't play around with that. It means like lady or ma'am. So he's being polite. He's like, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? And, And it's interesting that phrase. What does this have to do with us? Is what does is he actually, or what, is this, what does this have to do with me? What, what it basically means is, what do you and I have in common? So Mary says, hey, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And Jesus says, and, and remember, there's a crowd around. He says, ma'am, what do you and I have in common? Isn't that weird? So I want you to notice something. In this text, there's a shift that happens. With this very first miracle and Jesus responding to Mary this way, there's a shift that is happening. And this, this shift, this statement means that something has changed for Jesus in his relationship with everybody else in the world. Now think about this. Jesus is probably 30 around this time. For 30 years, Jesus has, has been Mary's son. And his father, Joseph, his, his, his earthly father, a few weeks ago we talked about there's this spirit, supernatural thing happened where Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph married Mary. They had Jesus, and then they went on to have other, other family later. Jesus had brothers and sisters. But Jesus didn't have an earthly father. He had a heavenly father, but Joseph was basically his stepdad. And we see that at age 12, Jesus is still with Mary and Joseph. Joseph's alive by age 12, but yet at age 30-ish, we don't hear anything about Joseph ever again. So we're led to believe that Joseph has probably passed away at this point. And so Jesus is the oldest son, which in that culture meant he was the man of the house. So when things needed to be done, Mary would go to Jesus and, and he would take care of it. So when something broke, Jesus took care of it. Like, so, hey, hey, Jesus, the AC unit's not working. Like, I need you to go out and fix it. Okay, like, no problem. Like, Jesus was that, was that kind of guy. Like, hey, Jesus, can you go get some new tires for the Subaru? Or, or Jesus, the, the little trickle system isn't working on the organic tomatoes. Like, I need you to, to, go, to go out and, and take care of these things. And, and especially, imagine how impactful this would be if your, son, if your son was the son of God, right, who had power. Like, hey, Jesus, the sun's coming in weird right now in the window. Can you shift the house a little bit to the west? <laughs> You know, right? Or hey, Jesus, can you make more of those bacon wrapped jalapenos that we're not supposed to tell anybody about? Can, can, you know, for a couple more weeks, can you can you make? There's always a barbecue joke. Can you make one of those? Like so, so imagine Jesus has it, been treated with Mary like this for thirty years, and so Mary she walks up to Jesus like she always does. Hey, Jesus, out wine? Can you can you do that thing again? But notice what Jesus says this time. Something is different. Jesus' ministry has begun. Jesus is now out preaching in the villages and talking in the towns and he's not just hanging with his buds anymore. The relationship has changed. And so he politely says, ma'am, what do we have in common here? My hour's not here yet, meaning the hour that I'm going to give my life for the world. Basically what he's saying is, Mary, don't treat me like your earthly son anymore. Treat me like the son of God. Like that's signaled to her. Start treating me like the divine son of God. And I wonder, as we read this and and as we look at this statement, I want you to ask yourself, when you think of Jesus, what do you think of? Do you think of him as the son of God, the divine ventor, right, the son of God? Or do you think of him as the genie in a bottle or the spreader of pixie dust or just a guy you call on when you need to phone a friend? Or is he the divine son of God? He made it clear with Mary, and I think he wants to make it clear with us, too, that Jesus is our friend, but he's not our homeboy. Jesus is our friend, but he's not our boyfriend. Jesus is our friend, but he's the divine son of God. So we, we see this exchange here with, with Mary. Now, back to the story. So I love how Mary responds, though, right? Like, moms in the room, like, you guys get it, right? So Mary, Joseph, Jesus is like, lady, woman, mom, or whatever. Like, what's this have to do with us? And Mary's like, Pfft. She looks at the servants like, do whatever he tells you to do, right? Like, she's she's like, I don't even care. You know, whatever you have to say, Jesus. We'll talk about it later. Do whatever he says. And so he's got these servants there. And notice what he does. He takes the servants and he says to them, okay, go and and fill up these stones. Look at verse 6. Check this out. This is cool. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, now notice this. So Jesus fills these jars with water up to the brim, and all of a sudden, this transformation happens. Water into wine. Like this, to, to us, we're like, oh, that's interesting. That's cool. I mean, just think of like the components of water, right? Think of the components of wine. They're very different. I mean, it is a complete atomic shift that happens just instantly in this water. And I think there's something that Jesus wants to reveal to us here, and it's this. That Jesus reveals that He has control over every atom of creation. Like with Jesus, like the simple act of turning water into wine is something that reveals that Jesus has control over everything. At a very atomic level, He takes water. He takes water, right? He He takes this very basic material and He turns it into wine. Here's a picture of, of, of wine, how wine's made. So grapes are put into this, this bin, and it's, it's ma- mashed. And over, over time, um, the, the, there, there's yeast involved. And over, over time, that it turns into water and glucose, which is sugar, and amino acids. And so Jesus instantly, there's amino acids, and there's glucose, and there's water, and there's all these things. And so I think Jesus is echoing what we see throughout the rest of the Bible, that he was the creator. That, that we see in Genesis chapter 1, that God created everything. Everything. We see in Colossians chapter one that Jesus was the one who spoke everything into existence. Jesus is revealing that I am the one who creates and I have the ability to modify and to create at the atomic level. And there's something else cool here. Jesus takes something plain and necessary like water and turns it into something beautiful and bountiful and joyful like wine. It also shows us Jesus can take broken things and he can repair those things. Like 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says that in Christ, we are now a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Jesus has the ability to make new wine out of old, dead, broken things. Isn't that amazing? And so I guess the question for you is, where do you need Jesus to make new wine in your life? Where do you need Jesus to take something plain and make it into something joyful? Is it a relationship? Is it a work situation? Is it your faith? Make new wine. Take something old and make it new. See, I think there's this, there's this thing that exists in all of us, and it's this desire to get better. I think we all have, it, especially as Christians, we, I think the Spirit works inside of us and gives us the stirring that says, we, we want to get better. We, we want to, to maybe fall for the brokenness or fall for the lies or, or maybe not give in to these sinful things as often. And there's this desire inside of us to, to get better. And what often happens to us, though, is we end up thinking the way that we get there is by trying harder. I'm just going to tighten my boots more. I'm going to white-knuckle it even more. And over time, I, I, I try hard. I try harder, but, but we still have this downward slide that happens. Like one of the things that God wants us to see here is that the, the, uh, anything that we try to do externally to change what's going on inside won't work. It can, we do need to put the work in, but we're going about it the wrong way. We've got the formula backwards. We can't focus on the outside because the outside isn't what's going to change our anxiety or our depression or our addictions or our anger. The only thing that ultimately changes those things that makes us a new person and helps us get better at fighting them is being changed from the inside. So I think there's something Jesus is revealing to us here. It's that real lasting change only comes from allowing Jesus to change us from the inside out. That there's this surrender that has to happen. There's this inward change that has to happen. And as that inward change happens, it spills over into our actions, the way we live our life. Guys, I have seen God do some amazing things. And so have you if you look for him. I mean, I've seen people who are just struggling with anger and addiction and really difficult situations and brokenness in their life. Over time, experience the newness that Jesus brings. I've got a really good friend named Adam. And and you know, Courtney and I we used to spend a lot of time with Adam and Adam really struggled with with alcohol. I mean it was it was it was really bad and there was a point where we thought I don't I'm not sure he's gonna have a long life the way that he's living. And when he gave his life to Jesus, it, it was like it was like instantly something changed in him. And he's been sober for twelve years. And God has been using him in amazing ways and using his story in amazing ways. And there are countless stories in this church and and, in our families of people like Adam who surrendered to Jesus and just said, Jesus, I want to try to live the way you call me to do it, but I can't do it on my own. Jesus takes old things and he makes them new. And this is what Jesus wants to do in your life. So where do you need Jesus to make new wine in your life? So I want you to see what happens next. Look at this in verse eight. So Jesus takes these basic atoms of of water and turns them into this beautiful thing of wine. And then he goes and he gives it to uh, one of the servants. And notice what he says here in verse eight. He says, and he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And he did not know where it came from, though the servants that drew it, the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, "Everyone who serves, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now." So, so notice this. There, there's this uh, this wedding planner. He's like the wedding coordinator, and he has this wine, and these eyes pop out of his head. He's like, "Hold on a second. This wine is amazing." And he goes and he praises the groom for bringing the good wine last. See, typically what would happen is they bring the good wine out, right? They'd bring out the Screaming Eagle or they would bring out the Ghost Horse Vineyard wines and have all that out, the really good stuff. And a little later after people drank, they'd bring out the Boda box, right? The box wine and, and, and by then people didn't care because they were merry and they were singing and dancing. But here it's like, hold on a second, you brought the good stuff out last? Like nobody does that. And I think it's, it's beautiful because it reveals something to us. God saves the best for last. The most expensive bottle of wine ever sold was in 2018. It was a 1945 bottle of vintage Burgundy. Here's a picture of it. This bottle of wine sold for 558 thousand bucks. It's crazy for a bottle of wine. I hope, they, I hope they're just like taking little sips out of it, right? Like it's 600 thousand dollars for a bottle of wine. But the best bottle of wine ever created was created 2,000 years ago. Out of a stone jar, in some backwater town called Cana, and it's just amazing to think about that God. He's telling us this picture that He saves the best for last. So I want you to picture with me. Notice this: when, when, um, when, when, when the, the, the Bible was when Moses wrote the book of Genesis, we see in the very beginning that God created mankind to live with God in community in this garden, in this place together, and that mankind sinned. And we see that immediately when mankind sins, God says, I am going to fix this. He says, I'm going to send someone someday to fix this problem. And then a few chapters later in the book of Genesis chapter 12, he, um, God calls to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I want you to move to this place I'm going to show you. And then I'm going to, you're going to have a son. And through your family, I'm going to bless the world I'm gonna send the promised one to bless the world. And so God gives us this promise that one day I'm gonna come and fix everything that was broken. And then we get to the law, right? We get into Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Um, We start to see that God gives Israel the law and he gives them the 10 commandments and he gives them this law and this law was given to them to be guardrails for relationships. This showed us why we needed God because we can't keep the law on our own and it gave us provision for what to do when we messed up. And so the law was meant to give people guide rails. But what happened? Over time, people began to use those guardrails, that old covenant, that old wine, to become the way to connect with God. So don't miss this. When Jesus comes in here, Jesus comes in and says, guys, I'm the new wine. The old wine was the old covenant. The old wine was the rules and the promises. I am the new wine. I came to fulfill all those and to give you a new covenant, and I'm the new wine. Let me tell you, this wine is so good. It's so good. Notice there were six stone jars. Six stone jars. Fill that picture back up, if you would, of the six stone jars. This is what they would have looked like. They held between 20 and 30 gallons of water, and they would be used for ceremonial purification. So what you would do is they would bring that wine out, those water jars out, and people would wash their hands. And there was this picture of ceremonial purification. People would wash their hands and they would be clean before they ate. And then afterwards, they would wash their hands again. And and so these jars were used for that. There's something going on here with Jesus. He's saying something about the law. I want you to notice this. These these first century Jews, this, this ceremonial cleanness, if you didn't wash your hands before you ate, you were ceremonial unclean. In the Mosaic law, there were 613 laws. And again, God used them to be guardrails to show people how to stay on the road. The Pharisees and the Sadducees used them as the rules to connect with God. And so when Jesus comes and he uses these, he uses these purification jars and he takes the water that was ceremonial and he puts wine that is a picture of God's joy and grace. Jesus is saying, the old way is gone. I came to fulfill that. The new way has come. The old wine is gone, its new wine is here. The old covenant is gone, the new covenant is here, which means that it's no longer about rule-keeping, guys. It's about a relationship with me. This is a beautiful picture that God is showing us. So let me ask you, when you think about how you relate with God, is it by using stone jars to follow these rules? Is it about keeping God's rules because I don't want to I don't want to step on a crack? Or is it a relationship? where we do our best to follow God's plan because God tells us what's best for us and we do it because God loved us first, not because we hope that God's gonna show us love or grace or favor. Jesus came to bring the new wine and there's a bigger picture here too. I want you to see this. That since the best was saved for last, the truth here that God wants us to see is that God's grace just gets better and better with time. Whoa! Whoa! All right, Josh Allen. Try that again. There we go. This summer, we went to... Mahomes would have made that connection. This summer, we went to... Summer, we went to New Hampshire. Well, we went to, to Cape Cod. I've told you guys about it. We went to New Hampshire for pancakes. And we went to this plant place called the, Marple, uh, the, the Parker Maple Barn. And they had this little sugar shack in New Hampshire on the other side of a covered bridge. It was like a beautiful, you know, Hallmark movie that you ladies are going to be watching here in about a month. And we went to this place, and it was amazing. And so I'm asking the guy, because we're like the only ones there at like 1030 in, in the morning. And we asked the guy, like, how is this made? And here's what he said. When they make the, the, the north, uh, northeastern New England maple syrup, they actually tap these maple trees, and the maple tree's got to be at least 40 years old. Then they let it, the maple drip, and they collect 60 gallons at this place. The, 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 the ratios can change, but at this place, 60 gallons of, of, of syrup, of sap, right, basically, and they boil it down to make one gallon of syrup. 60 to one. Is there a more inefficient process? But it's so good, it'll change your life. I'm telling you. Like I thought about giving you guys like a teaspoon taste because it's amazing. (laughs) So here's the thing. You you can go to King Supers, Walmart, Target. You can buy a bottle of Log Cabin that was made in five minutes. Or you can spend $13 (laughs) for whatever this is a pint of the most delicious, life-changing, I think the gospel is in this. It's like, it's, it's so good, of this syrup. See, there's this picture that I think God wants us to see, is that, God, that, that God's grace gets better over time. That sometimes we want fast grace, we want quick fixes, we want silver bullets. And God says, no, let me slowly change you from the inside, and tomorrow you're a little better than you were yesterday, and you're getting 1% better. And the next year, you look back, and you're different. In 10 years, you look back, and you're different. God does his best work over time. And the more God's word transforms you, the more community you get with God's people, the sweeter it gets, the better it tastes. And it gets better and better over time, like wine. Wine gets better the more vintage it is. So what Jesus is saying is this, by saying he's the new wine, Jesus is saying that that he brings joy to life, that it's the joy that he gives that's abundant and overflowing with the best yet to come. So Jesus performs this miracle. He takes water and he turns it into wine. And, And notice what John says in verse 11. He says this in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples what? Believed his disciples believed, his first miracle. He's done some teaching, he's done some other things, but this is, according to John, his first miracle, and the disciples believed. Jesus said, hello world, and they said, this is the one. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for for 1,500 years, for 700 years since Isaiah spoke. Here's the guy we've been waiting to to see. And he's teaching us something amazing here. And here's what I want you to—if uh, you could take anything away, here's what I want you to see. In Jesus' first miracle, Jesus doesn't just do this miracle to show you his power. Darren last week preached about Jesus calming the storm. Jesus could stop there. A dude that calms a storm—that dude is powerful, right? Like we don't need more. Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus does these miracles to show us something bigger. It's not just a demonstration of his divinity. It's revealing who he is. It's revealing that he is the son of God. It's revealing that that he is the one that we've been waiting for so that we might believe in him. Jesus' miracles are showing us that Jesus came to restore things to the right order. He came to show us the way the world was meant to be. That water should, that wine shouldn't be this, powered, watered down little thing that is supposed to be full and of, of flavor and beautiful and taste. And he, he came to show us that life isn't meant to be dull and dry, but it's to be full of joy and peace and grace. And Jesus is showing all of this to us so that we can understand this amazing truth. And this is where I want to land: is this that God, that God's grace is abundantly poured out for those who don't deserve it. Think about this. Jesus is showing us here that God's grace is abundantly poured out for those who don't deserve it. This is cool. So can we throw that picture of the jars back up? Each of these jars holds 20 to 30 gallons of water. So if Jesus took six jars and they each hold 30 gallons of water, where are my mathematicians at? How many gallons of water is that? Six times 30. 180. Okay, so Jesus makes 180 gallons of wine on the spot. So if you were going to go bottle bottles of wine on the spot, or if you're going to go bottle a bottle of wine, it's 750 milliliters, right? Some of you are like, I have no idea how much is in that. But it's 750 milliliters. You know how many bottles of wine that is? 180 gallons? There's five bottles of wine per gallon. Quick math? That's 900 bottles of wine. Jesus for sure knew how much wine they needed. Maybe they needed 10. Maybe they needed 25. Jesus is like, hey, I know you need 10 bottles of wine, but here's a 1,000, right? Like, isn't that amazing? And I think he's teaching us here that this is the symbol of God's overflowing grace, that God's grace is abundantly poured out to those who don't deserve it. I mean, this family now has 1,000 bottles of wine. It's enough for the rest of the party. That's enough for the rest of the year. That's enough for that family to take home. It's actually enough of the best wine that's ever been made for them to sell it and to start their family off on good financial footing. When God gives you grace, guys, he doesn't give you just a little bit of grace. He gives you a lot of grace. He gives you so much grace and you don't even know it. John 1:16. Jesus came, he's the light of the world. He came and tented among us and it says this. For him, for from him, his fullness for from his fullness, we have received what, church? Grace upon grace. Don't miss this, guys. Jesus gives us abundantly grace. He, he, his grace flows into our life more than we ever need. So where in your life right now is God giving you grace? Where in your life right now is the grace of God being poured out for you? Maybe the best way I've ever heard this explained is with communion. With communion, you've got this beautiful picture of the body and the, the blood of Jesus being shed for us. And so when we come together and we take communion and we take it with a, you know the, the COVID cups, right? And a little bread on top. It's a good symbol, right? It's easy, it's quick. But here's what I wanna say. I think sometimes when we think about God's grace, we think about God's grace being this much, right? Like, you think about the grace of God in your life. We think of God's grace, we don't don't think of it overflowing, we think of God's grace being just enough, you know? And maybe if I'm good today, then God will give me just this much tomorrow. And if I can follow the rules and read my Bible and pray a little more, then maybe God will just give me just a little. And so we think of just God's grace that way, that God's grace is just this small, tiny amount. But guys, I want you to see that God's grace is not just a little small amount. That God's grace is overflowing in your life. And when you recognize it, when you realize it, it has the power to change everything that Jesus is doing in your life. Because no longer is God's grace just a little sip. But instead, God's grace is pouring out for you and it continues to pour and pour and pour. And God's grace doesn't stop. God's grace just gets all over your boots. <laughs> because God's grace is so good and it never stops pouring out. And when you realize that, when you come to the table and that God's grace is not a small cup, but it's overflowing. It has the ability to change you from the inside out because God's spirit is inside of you and it's pouring that grace into every part of your life. He is just saying, believe. And let me help you in your unbelief. Forefront, what would it look like this week if we became people who saw the abundant grace of God spilling all over our lives? And how could that change the way we view our relationship with our Heavenly Father and our relationship with one another. I think it might just have the power to change everything. Would you pray with me?